0: All right. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Looking Glass Darkly with your host, Dave ascuro And our guests today are perfect to kick off spooky season. If you're a fan of true crime and murder mysteries, then our guests today are going to thrill you. Corey and Courtney have started a podcast called Sinister Crimes and Cocktails, a specific look at not only true crimes and the cases involving them and the murders themselves, but also a balance of... Um, everyday questions about how these cases are reported in documentaries and other such mainstream news outlets, as well as some insight on some of the proceedings that go on behind the scenes as it relates to the criminal justice system. I thought both Courtney and Corey brought such amazing insights into not only their inspiration to in the podcast and sort of what motivated them and what they love about these kind of podcasts and true crime in general, but also Answering some of the questions that I had in terms of why serial killers seem to be more of a relic of the past. What is the obsession with true crime? What are some things that people don't quite know about true crime or they get wrong? I love when podcasts can be both conversational, but also, hopefully, enlighten the audience and the listeners to something up to a perspective, perhaps, that they hadn't otherwise thought of or some inside baseball that they're not privy to. It's through those kinds of podcasts, podcasts like Sinister Crimes and Cocktails, that we become more educated, that we become more worldly, understanding, um, and and also inquisitive. Because for every new bit of information presented to you, from every new perspective that it's provided from, hopefully, it also invokes within you the opportunity to ask more questions, to get more interested and And um, desiring of information as a racism because the psychology behind true crimes, as I have learned in this podcast, is one of the driving factors. It is our desire to unravel what seems to be a big timey-wimey knot of psychosis that for the average person is foreign to us. It's un- its pulling those threads and trying to unravel the knots. That is the most compelling aspect of true crime, and I think that Courtney and Corey do an excellent job of being the forefront at the forefront of trying to unravel some of these. Um, confusing and dark and sinister crimes that are captivating to us. So I want to thank Courtney and Corey for uh, coming on this podcast. It was such a, it's such a treat to talk to them. I've known Courtney since high school. So to, to see someone I've known for such a long time, be compelled and motivated and inspired to start their own podcast, which is really, really uh, amazing for me to see and to see how well they're doing it and to see how passionate they are about it. I love that kind of stuff because I always hope that new people will be invited and motivated and inspired to jump into this foray, to jump into this medium and provide something new that's perhaps not already here. There are lots of true crime podcasts out there. They all have their particular angles. And I think that Courtney and Corey have found their own niche in this very popular genre. Plus, when talking about creepy stuff, who doesn't like having a cocktail to take the edge off? It's the perfect mix. Sinister Crimes and Cocktails is such an innovative and fun podcast to listen to. And I think that you're going to enjoy listening to Courtney and Corey tell their own story about how it came to be. So without further ado, my guest today from the Sinister Crimes and Cocktails podcast, Courtney and Corey. So first and foremost, thank you for, for you know, Corey and Courtney for coming on the podcast. Um, your backdrop is so much more professional than mine. Like for those people who can't see this, there's like you have sound uh, dampening behind you. You have like nice mics with you know the the sort of pop protectors. Like you're very very professional setup here. Did you have all this stuff already, or was this things that you've accumulated to set up your podcast?
1: Actually, uh, I told my husband that I wanted to do this podcast with Corey, and he went on Amazon and ordered us all this equipment and turned our laundry room into our recording studio.
0: That is amazing. That is we so
2: cool. We definitely have to give credit to Aaron on this one. <laughs> yeah,
0: I love it. But I love thank it. Thank so-
2: you
1: also. Thank you also for um, having us on your show too. Like seriously, we are so excited to be able to like, you know what I
0: mean, talk to you about this too. Absolutely. No, absolutely. I I, I love. So I I fell into podcasting. Years ago, it, I was uh, I was having a conversation with some of my friends during Christmas. I went back to Texas, and I you know we were just chatting about whatever one chats about you know till two and two a.m. And I I thought it was really interesting, and I I wish I could share it. And so I've been through a few iterations of different podcasts until I've kind of landed on this one, which I'm really really happy with. But it always started from this desire. To just share the kind of conversations I have with these people that I know, and I'm just very fortunate that I know all these really creative, really amazing people who do all these really interesting things. And then I go on social media, which I've been trying to do less of, but I go on and I see that you all have a podcast, and I thought it was really cool that a friend of mine from high school is now doing like venturing into the world of podcasting as well, and has an awesome setup. So, what what inspired you? I know you you talked about wanting to do a podcast for a long time. What, what was the beginning of that? Like what drew you to podcasting?
1: Well, <laughs> I'm sorry, I think for me, um, during COVID, when we were all shut down and I was home mm. with three kids, <laughs> I really started listening to I, well, I've been a stay-at-home mom now for seven years, and so I kind of became obsessed with true crime and just watching it all the time. And then during when COVID, when everything was shut down, I started listening to podcasts because it was an easy way to keep myself entertained while still keeping an eye on the kids. Uh And I found two girls um, that have a podcast called Morbid. And I absolutely fell in love with their podcast. And I kept telling Corey, like, I think we could do that with your background, Corey, because she has so much experience in Uh criminal justice. And she was kind of on board with it. So and it was a perfect time because she was an investigator for the DA's office where we live. And she um, is now doing her own private investigation. So it kind of allowed her the time to actually have this
0: Time to do it. So, kind of and, out. and Corey, for you, does it feel like a, like a natural extension of what you're already doing, working in criminal justice?
2: Um, I wouldn't say natural extension exactly. <laughs> I mean, I I feel like it's the best thing in the world. I get to talk true crime with one of my best buds uh, while drinking. I mean, I, I can't really say that it's a a terrible. Uh, gig. <laughs> but as far as as far as it being extension, it, it definitely helps me put my knowledge um, and experience into into practice for sure, outside of my normal everyday job that I do. And it allows me to really look into some different aspects of crimes that I don't know that I ever touched on before, just because they didn't happen local. So right. to be able to examine something from afar and really, you know, look into those kind of things and look how they were handled, look how they were investigated and that kind of stuff. And then have Courtney's opinion and her kind of view on it is just awesome because right now I work for defense attorneys, right? And I help pick juries and I do other things amongst Mm -hmm. my prime investigation. And Courtney is a lot of what you get on when you're picking a jury. So to have her insight on things is just really fascinating and really interesting to me and just, you know, golden. I I love it.
0: Well, I, I, you know, one of the things that that stood out to me right away when I started listening to your podcast, which by the way is called "Sinister Crimes and Cocktails," for anyone who's not aware, which I, I'll talk about the name and why I like it so much. But one of the things that struck me is that um, number one, you're able, Corey, to speak from, like you said, your background working in uh, criminal justice, working and being familiar with how. The criminal justice system works because the average person probably just has no understanding, or at best, their understanding of of uh, the way a courtroom works is sort of relegated to like SVU, you know, Law and Order, like those kind of <laughs> things. Honestly, when I was in university, I wanted to be a lawyer strictly because I was a big Law and Order fan, and then I took classes and I decided I'm going to be a filmmaker. Um, but so it, you're already coming from it from a perspective that the average person doesn't have, and then Courtney, I think that you have such enthusiasm for the material, and I think you have a very um, rational way of looking at things and questioning things, which also really stood out. Like you're just you're looking at the data presented or the data that's available to the average person, and you're just looking a little bit more critically with a more critical eye. That I think most of us do, right? And that's very true for most of the media that we consume these days. We just, you either have folks who believe nothing, or you have folks who believe everything. But what seems to be in short supply are folks who are saying, well, let's just look at it. Let's just look and ask questions and see. And maybe we'll come to the same conclusions. And maybe we won't. But at least let's have the conversation. Was that is that, does that just come naturally? Or is that like an intentional um, sort of aspect of the podcast that you wanted to uh, to be a, a factor?
1: Well, thank you very much. Like that, that makes me say he, he, that I'm very flattered. But uh, I think that just comes natural because I had no intention of doing that. That was just me doing for each store or for each episode that we've done, crime that we do. I spend about three, four, five days doing research, as much research as I can, and I just I try to look for different facts that I haven't presented in documentaries or in other podcasts. And so, I mean, I get, but I think it's just natural. Sure.
2: It's absolute research in which you find out more things and and you go into it. And that's one big thing that I love about this podcast and me and Courtney's banter back and forth is that sometimes I get lost in all the things that I've learned and done and know from my education and my experience. And Mm -hmm. I forget just the simplest little things. And you see that so often in law enforcement nowadays that they really can't see the little things. They're just looking at the bigger things um, for whatever pressure's on them. And with having court here, it's fun to go back and look at these cases and go, man, you know, if they would have just looked at it from her point of view or just taken a step back and kind of went back and went, how do I answer a simple point of view question like this? I would have probably been able to solve this crime a long time ago. Right. So where people think that they don't know, and just because I have a lot of experience in education, it doesn't always mean that I'm always going to get it right. And so it's nice to have somebody else out there going, hey, why didn't they do this? And I'm like, well, why didn't they do this? And this podcast really comes from, I mean, literally like Friday nights, me and Court drinking, talking true crime. <laughs> I mean, that's where this came from. Like when Courtney told me, she's like, "Court, let's do a podcast. And I was like, well, that sounds like fun. And then I was like, let's put some drinks to it like we do every Friday night or Saturday night. And we get together and we just start talking crime and like, oh, did you see this on the news? Or, oh, did you see this documentary? And then it was like, this could be fun. And it's just been amazing since
0: that that is absolutely in my opinion the best way to approach these things. I have found that the podcasts that I, I gravitate towards are ones where it feels like the host um, just just turned the mic on to what they were already doing and what you what we as the audience get is sort of a fly on the wall sort of perspective of a conversation or an examination that was already in progress before someone hit play. It's certainly a vibe that I try to create here. um, Just as though we were catching up. And so I think that comes across. Uh, I think it definitely comes across. And there's a, this goes back to sort of the title, you know, you called it sinister crimes. I think that's really important because obviously true crime is very popular right now. And if, and for people who watch the Dahmer series on Netflix um, or the Ted Bundy uh, movies that came out and I was even up, I'm so very sad I didn't get the job, but I was very up for doing for producing a movie about the dating game uh, serial killer. That yeah, um, that's cool. That's in that's being developed, and I, I can say that because the news are out, articles are out. But um, it's 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 a big form of entertainment right now. But I think that sometimes um, what can get lost is that these are in many regards heinous crimes. That these are these are real tragedies, and so I like that that just that little bit of addition to. It wasn't just like crimes and cocktails which would have been fun in of itself but it's like you really point out that these this is a dark subject matter and you're going to treat it with a little bit of levity you know you're gonna, you're going to take the edge off with the with the drinking aspect but it doesn't you're not glamorizing or sensationalizing the topics that you're going after you're you're really looking at it in earnest and really digging into the nitty-gritty and the very uncomfortable facts sometimes that that will oftentimes surround these cases
2: Yes, absolutely. When we go into looking at different kinds of um, cases that we're going to look into and do our research in, we try to pick crimes that aren't so like out there and that aren't so publicized. Because what we find is a lot of times the really sinister stuff doesn't get a lot of press. Mm. And it's It's just because it happens in rural areas. It happens in places where people just, you know, don't watch the news a lot. I mean, you, you get some things that make a big splash. Serial killers always make a big splash, right? Because they're the fun ones. They're the ones that, you know, go above beyond. But when you go down to like these smaller crimes and the background into them and why they happened, uh, that in itself becomes very sinister. And then you start going, wait a minute. I got a family member that's like that. Or wait a minute, I got a neighbor that kind of creeps me. What the hell? And then all of a sudden, you know, that's one thing I love with Courtney is like, I'll say something and she'll like, really, Corey, are you kidding me right now? And I'm like, she's like, <laughs> oh, my God, I was just in the supermarket with that lady. And I'm like, well, I'm just saying, you know, uh, she's kind of, you know, and we'll go back and forth like that. And I think that's what also is really, really fun about this is that we're not taking everything you can see on tv already because tv right. i'm sorry it glamorizes so much of what it really the nitty-gritty of crime comes down to and and doing the investigations in it doing the research in it th- there's a lot more to it and honestly like if you were to go watch a criminal trial <laughs> it's boring it's slow moving
1: there's no big glamour in it you keep telling me that i keep telling Corey that i want to be on a jury and she's like you no. don't they're so boring i'm like <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay like, you'll be so
2: disappointed You'll be like i need some law and order and we actually educate our juries on that factor we call it the csi factor like mm-hmm. we educate them and say hey look <laughs> you're not going to have gibbs in the background running fingerprints for us and doing you know some miraculous blood swabs like you're going to have you know very small amount of evidence we're going to present it to you we're going to bring in experts who are going to talk about all kinds of stuff that you've never heard of and you're never going to hear of again and you're not really going to care about but it's prevalent to the case and it goes from there. And so being able to get down into that nitty gritty on this podcast is kind of fun because it gives that aspect of it. And Courtney brings that to the fun of it too. Cause she's like, really that, they do that. Oh, that's neat too. You know, that kind of stuff.
1: Sorry. I didn't mean no, to go, 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 right ahead. No, go ahead. There's a part of it, you know, I don't, I don't know a lot of like the criminal justice part of it. And so Corey, Corey's really good about giving that perspective of why Cops wouldn't do a certain thing or lawyers wouldn't do a certain thing,
0: you know? Yeah. I mean, I I remember when I, like I said, when I was first going to university, I I really strongly considered law and again, very much influenced from the, the sensationalized versions of like law and order. I'm going to put the criminals behind bars and that kind of thing. And I remember a story that they were telling us about like a Texas lawyer who fell asleep in the middle of a trial and, and then they were telling us that, like, if you get a law degree in Texas, you have to s- practice law for five years before you could transfer that law degree elsewhere. And it became very evident to me that what you see on television just isn't the reality of 99.999% of cases out there. Um, Courtney, I've been on a jury one time. Uh, actually, after <laughs> I moved out to Los Angeles, I was on a jury, ironically, for a head of a, a small production studio movie studio who was being accused of uh, misconduct with an employee and uh, somehow, even though I said I worked in film, they kept me on the jury. I'm not sure I don't know which side kept me or wanted to keep me, but I, I was selected and then um, and then we had our lunch break and I guess over the course of lunch they settled and by the time we came back, they dismissed us. So that was as close as I got, but it, it wasn't nearly as thrilling as uh tv would make it out to be although the fact that i knew who this producer was was kind of i felt like i was getting some inside gossip you know <laughs> like this studio has produced that would have
1: like, been a, that would have been a win for me that's really yeah
0: funny. yeah but but outside of that it was it's it's a pretty slow process but it's cool that you're really trying to educate you're not just looking at the the crime itself or or the people involved in the crime but you're but adding the context of what really goes on. Because for most people beyond like the fictionalized court cases, you get like the televised court cases, you get, you know, OJ Simpson and you get Depp V. Hurd and you get whatever other, you know, big sensationalized courtrooms there are. And and those things capture everyone's fascination. How, how close are those things to, again, the reality? Cause my, my feeling is that they're the anomaly; They're not the average court case that, that people would witness.
2: I would I would agree to that to some extent. The thing I liked about the Hurd case and the O.J. case is that it it went day by day with them, and that's what people don't miss that concept. Like things don't happen fast in court; like things mm-hmm. happen very slow. Judges take breaks, jury takes breaks, so you're you're sitting there all day, and you might only see one or two witnesses on the stand. That's how slow it can run sometimes. Wow. So that aspect of it, I'll agree with you. But on the other side of it. You know, they're, you get a lot of good insight when you watch, because I think they have like a new te- television um, channel called like Court TV. So you uh-huh. kind of get to see a little bit of the inside of the workings of the court. And it's really funny that you said you sat on a jury because you said I was selected. Well, really, the mentality of jury selection actually comes down to deselection. So uh-huh. what we're, the goal is to try to get the best, we say, the best butt in the seat, right? The person that's going to be the best person to look at the case from our perspective. So it's really deselection. And the less you talk, the more chance you're going to get, I'm going to give you a little tidbit for all your (laughs) listeners. But the more you talk, the less chance you're going to be on that jury. The more you sit there and be silent, they have no reason to tell the judge, I don't want them on my jury. Well, I am... I'm screwed. (laughs) So if you haven't
1: noticed, I have not had a couple of cocktails like we usually do before we start. And that gets my personality going. So I feel like I'm being like my introverted self. And I'm like, well, (laughs) they would just love me.
2: (laughs) They would would select you because you wouldn't give them any reason not to select you. So that's what the other part of it is with the jury selection part of it. And the court cases, they typically run very slow. And it's not as glamorous as everybody thinks. Our last, one of our last um, ones we just posted was about uh, Ornos. She was one of our favorite serial killers that me and Court really enjoyed doing our research on. She was a character and a half. And I really enjoyed her whole whole trial in court because she was just, she really brought some dynamics to the courtroom that made it fun to, mm. to watch. Of course, I didn't watch it back then. They didn't have it on TV. It wasn't televised. But just reading over the court stuff, it, it was really fun to be in that room and watch
1: her well, come out. That one, I think, was one of my favorites so far that we've done just because of the fact that I think we also looked at how Warnos wasn't given a fair trial. Right. And there was a lot of evidence that wasn't taken into account. So, I mean, I mean, we were just she obviously was a serial killer. But I'm just saying we also looked at the side that she wasn't given a fair trial either.
0: Yep. And that's that's really challenging. That's difficult because um even to this day, it feels like there are there's a large subset of folks that believe that that if you found if you're found guilty, you are guilty, and if you're found not guilty, then you're then you're innocent. And um and that by the way, the episode that you're referring to, I believe, is the Hooker from Hell part one and two. Correct? That is correct. Okay. For anyone who wants to check it out, um, I think you know that's a complicated case for because you're saying that it's very clear that she was a serial killer, and yet the fact that she wasn't afforded a fair trial kind of is a, is a weird concept for people. I don't think that they understand. I have um, a friend who was unfairly convicted of a, of a very heinous crime and spent um, decades or, you know, years of his life behind bars. And um, it was only because of media attention that he was able to get out um, and, and be free, but he lost pretty much all of his, 20s and, and just about most of his 30s behind bars because um, folks looked at him and his friends and they said these guys these guys did this because look at them they're obviously them um, and if it wasn't for a handful of documentaries that came out that that person might still be be behind bars now do you find as you're starting to look into these cases more deeply that um, the, the shortcomings of the criminal justice system, become a parent and maybe are a part of the story as much as the murders or the crime or whatever else uh, was involved in the the total story? For me, absolutely. Like, I think I've been really
1: surprised at, and I don't want to just blame detectives or police departments, but the lack of evidence being brought forward or things being covered up, that was very shocking to me, or um, just their complete... Being just unintelligent about situations or causing evidence to be destroyed or not to be able to be used, I mean it's just it to me that was that was shocking I didn't realize that that had gone on as much as it did
2: and it happens a lot um there's laws and there's so many laws and that are out there that have different levels of protection for both sides. And they, lawyers and judges get to use their interpretations of what they think that law says and how they think that law should apply to each case. So that's really difficult. I mean, I have talked to so many juries after we've gotten done with a case and they're like, oh my gosh, why didn't you tell us? Like, if you would have told us that we would have, we would have given them more time. And it's like, well, we couldn't because you can't know, like in Texas, we're a bifurcated system. So you do guilt and innocent first and then you do punishment second. You can either, for punishment, you can go to the, back to the same jury or you can go to the judge for your punishment trial portion of it. So all their criminal history, oh, people's criminal histories, defendants that are in there, their criminal histories are held and nobody gets to know that until they go into the punishment phase. You're just convicting just on the evidence of the crime itself. You can't use criminating evidence to find them guilty on. So in a way that can be a little bit fairer, but in a way, it can also hurt because if they are somebody who has repeatedly done something, who has repeatedly, you know, has this M.O. about them to do these kind of crimes, that doesn't get in front of the jury. And then when it gets to they find them not guilty because just the lack of circumstantial evidence or lack of evidence in itself, because sometimes evidence gets lost, it gets messed up. Our law enforcement here locally. You know, they they do their best, but they make a lot of missteps. And we see a lot of that as the D when I was working for the district attorney's office, we saw a lot of that issue where we had to send cases back and be like, (laughs) you need to go do this. Or I would have to take the case over and go get the evidence to be Mm -hmm. able to go forth in the case. And that's the hard part about it. So a lot gets left out. And that's difficult when you look at these cases like Warnus was one of them we looked at. And, you know, one of her victims, he was a rapist. He was a convicted rapist. And it was in his past, but that couldn't come out because there was a law that protected against that for his past to come out in court. But then there wasn't a law to protect Warnos from her. She hasn't been convicted yet, but what she's done because it fit the MO of her crime to come into play. So that's a little feels unfair, but it is the way the laws are written in Florida.
0: Interesting. It's, 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 you know, I think it's one of those, it's definitely one of those things where I I feel like the more people are educated about it, the more there will be a call for some reforms um, that need to be sort of implemented. And I think maybe more uh, visibility can assist with that. And there was a lot of people, I I remember, I guess, because it's the most recent case, like Debt v. Heard, there seemed to be a lot of people who were very um, splintered as to whether or not it should be televised or not. And that to some degree, you're playing to the court of public opinion whether or not that's fair or not. But I, I found that um, being able to witness the goings on of a trial really does help, and at least maybe I'm being naive, but I feel like it would help clean up some of these these moments or things that maybe aren't giving folks on trial a fair trial, whether they did it or not. I mean, at the end of the day, we, we, we do want them, <clears throat> for everyone to be able to go through a fair trial so that, um, that the system has integrity.
2: You do. Absolutely. You do. And there's always, the problem you're always going to have when it comes to law, and and this is my opinion on it, but your, your judges get to make the interpretation of the law. So laws are written in black and white, right? But it's the attorneys and the judges that get to make them gray in my opinion. And I've watched so many times where that's happened and you take a law that's meant to do this, but a good lawyer, a smart judge, um, you know, a good defense attorney will learn how to take that law and use it and twist it to help their case. Mm -hmm. Maybe keeping evidence out, maybe getting evidence in, I mean, it doesn't matter, but they still are able to use a black and white law and turn it gray, and that you're always going to have criminal justice problems and and the justice system problems because of that. And I think that's exactly how this kind of works. That's why you have people who were convicted of wrongly convicted and been in prison. Right now they're sitting there rotting away because you have laws that were used against them that weren't meant to be used against them, but because they didn't have a, a smart enough lawyer, maybe they were smoking pot. Who knows what was going on? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like the Warrens case, but or they were whatever, you know, they just weren't educated enough, and they weren't able to use the law, or that maybe they misused the law in the case, and then you go to the next kind of level of trying to get it appealed, and try to get it overturned, and then once you run out of options, now people have documentaries, they have people looking into it, they have people going through it, and trying to help them get out, and I mean, that's the best, to me, that's the best kind of reform you can do, is to have people keep looking, and unfortunately, I know it's hard, but Civil cases are typically going to be In public opinion if they put them on um, On TV Because that's what they want Right I mean both of these people were very re- In depth be heard, be heard Both of these people were very wealthy So it wasn't a money issue for them It was I want to put it out in the public of what's Going on what happened I want everybody to Know so no matter who wins You're still going to lose In a, in a right. sense And that, that's what happens when you talk about civil Criminals a little different Right, I mean, I I know of like O.J. Simpson. He's a perfect example. People hate him. People still think he did it, even though he's been found not guilty. It doesn't matter. Right. But the problem is, is, that putting it on TV, you now put it in the court of public opinion for sure.
0: Do you think because the reality of the criminal justice system differs from what Hollywood does with it? Do you do you think that that's where this interest has sort of sparked from? Because it does feel like in the last few years, there's been this massive investment in true crime from the documentaries that are coming out uh, to the podcasts that are coming out. And some of these, some of these, um, like you were mentioning, Corey, some of these documentaries, some of these sort of, I guess, for lack of a better term, homemade investigations have led to people getting free. I mean, um, the West from Memphis three, you could look at those guys and getting out because of the documentaries. Um, there was recently Adan Sayed. I'm not as familiar with this case, but my understanding is he was just released most recently because of the work that a podcast was doing, sort of bringing some of this information to light. So there is an impact there. Do you, do you find that um, like that's what's drawing people in or, or maybe just broadly speaking, because you're both interested in true crime. What, what is that fascination factor? For me, I think I'm just
1: fascinated by how those kind of sinister people, how their brain is working because it's so out of my realm of thinking about ever doing anything like that. I just think that that's fascinating. I don't know if that makes me sick, but I just, I think that's fascinating. I just, I I like to be able to look at how other people's brain works and how that makeup is making them do those things. I don't.
2: I would I mean, 100% agree on that with Courtney. And I think that's why me and Courtney get along so well with okay, this. Because, I'm glad I'm not
1: crazy,
0: Ben.
2: <laughs> no, it's, that's what drove me into the criminal justice field in the first place is it's the psychology behind the crimes and why people commit them and why people do what they do. That's the part of what I do that I absolutely adore because it feels like I'm always learning something new. Mm-hmm. Even with court doing this podcast, I'm still learning new things. And that to me in itself is so much fun and so peaceful in a sense that I know that I'm not already at the top of my realm. There's so much more I can learn. There's so much more I can do with this. I think when it comes to people being drawn to these kind of things, is I think it gets them to it's kind of like realistic fiction in a way. It's it's a situation that could happen. You could never believe it would happen and you're like, oh my gosh. And it's kind of the best world's best gossip. It's true gossip. And to, right. to me, I think that's what gets everybody so interested in is because you're getting part of, you're getting true gossip. It's not just gossip. No, this really happened and you're getting to hear all the little gritty details. And I'm always amazed at people when I would, when we would try murder cases and that kind of stuff about people who would come in during the medical examiner testifying because that's when all the oh, gruesome pictures to do that. See, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, because that's when all the gruesome pictures are shown. That's when the autopsy pictures are shown. That's when they tell you about how they were killed. They show you their wound that killed them, that kind of stuff. And they're just drawn by that. It's it's realistic. So it's like, oh my gosh, wow, that can really happen. Like you see it in movies, but you know it's a movie. But when it's realistic and it's true, it's like, holy crap, that can really happen. You mean there's really a Michael Myers out there that do that does bad things like this? Absolutely. Yeah, I stand in the the background. That's the kind (laughs) of jury
1: I want to be on. I mean, that's that's
2: Courtney really wants see I want to adopt a serial killer and Courtney really wants to watch a serial killer be tried I do
0: <laughs> I really well, do I, I, I it's funny because I am a huge horror movie fan I love horror movies I mean you can tell in the background we have all these you know gadgets behind us um I have no stomach for actual uh, uh body mutilation or or autopsy reports I just I don't I just I used to work at a hospital for like three months right out of high school. And it was, that was it. That was as close as I could get to sort of real life trauma. I'm not a fan of it. My wife under the hand will put on a murder podcast to go to sleep. And she'll sleep peacefully through the night. So, <laughs> yes. uh, And mm-hmm. what I have found through her fascination with true crime is that her awareness of what could happen is heightened. So, you know, sometimes it's a joke, like, oh, there's bodies in there. Or we were talking about, um, we have a skunk under our house, or at least we did the other night. And we were talking about how there's like a little cross space underneath our, our house here. And we're talking with our neighbor and immediately her and my wife were started talking about how that, uh, John Wayne Gacy. And that's where you can hide the bodies. And they go into this whole, like they, they know how it all works now, which is both frightening for me. And also reassuring that if there's ever a crime that I'm falsely committed of, um, Jess can hopefully help investigate and get me free because she seems to know <laughs> way, way too much about this stuff. I think it's a really cool thing. And, you know, there's the documentary, um, don't fuck with cats that came out on Netflix a couple of years ago, where uh, that's it, a good one. It is a really yeah, good one. Internet sleuths with, with time and, um, you know, unhindered by the rules of the courtroom can really go deep into these cases and they can, uncover things that maybe uh, either weren't allowed in or the police miss, or maybe sometimes it's a matter of them just being too close, you know, the, not being able to see the forest from the trees, which I know can happen really in any profession, but seeing, you know, everyday folks being able to assert themselves in that manner and really dig in deep without having to worry about uh some of the rules it reminds me of those old like hard-boiled like detective movies where like they could break all the rules to figure out the crime and that's could be anyone now anyone can do that to some level with the with the internet and with all the information that's available on these various cases
2: sure and you but you have to be careful too like i try not to just stick with the internet for my research and the reason because there's all kinds of things that get put on the internet and not everything, of course you read on the internet is true about even true crime. You have to be really, really careful about what you look at. And like even the Netflix documentary, while they're great, they're also very, what we're finding is they're very one sided. Hmm. They're usually sided towards the person who has come forth and is doing the okaying of the documentary being filmed. Right. So when you start to look deeper into it, and we have another podcast that we did off a net, uh, Netflix documentary where when Courtney and my mom watched it, they were like, oh, this is this, this. And then I watched it. I'm like, whoa, no way. And I had a completely different look and take on it. And then they watched it again. They're like, son of really, Corey? Are you kidding me? Like, oh, I was so – felt so sorry for this guy. And now I'm
1: like, oh, well, it's kind of his mom's fault <laughs> or it's kind of his stepmom's <laughs> fault, you know? So,
0: oh, that's that's the episode I listened to. I think that was um, Anthony Tomplay. Mm-hmm. Yes, 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 yes. That was that's a strange case, it very is. strange case.
1: But
2: and, you know, we'll see what happens with it. Hopefully, maybe we get enough likes on our podcast that they'll start looking at it from a different angle. That's true.
1: Well, also too, I want to say about the internet. Like I know, and when, when I'm doing my research, I try. I I love newspapers, too. Mm-hmm. And so I have a subscription where I can get online, and I try to pull. Like old newspaper articles that have been written, Mm -hmm. especially from those towns, I like to look at to see what they're saying. And you you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And I'll try to pull, like, because Corey told me, what is it, the Texas? You can get on some websites throughout the different states and be able to pull, like, police records and that kind mm -hmm. of stuff that have been public. And so I'll try to actually pull those too, just to have correct information and look over it. And look
0: over it. And. In your research, do you find any um, difference between how things were reported then versus now? Because as, as, as sort of a layman, I, I think that the, the era uh, before the 24-hour news cycle and, and, and the 60-second news cycle with Twitter, um, it felt like there had to be more time put behind the stories, whereas now there's just like this immediacy to, to get something out there, to get some info out there, even if it's in – um, unfounded or partial clips it's like so if a of a case is more recent than maybe say set in the 70s or even the 80s 90s do you find that there, i mean you, you alluded to it, there's, like, there's not a as difference? much i
1: i find that like the newer cases of today's 2000s it's more internet driven as far as mm-hmm. what articles are being published and when you're talking about the 1990s and before that It's pretty much, to me, it's mostly off of articles that are written in newspapers or magazines. Exactly. I mean,
2: and that's where I caution everybody with it, because we still live in a town where we only get our paper once a week. So Mm. our paper has a week to figure out stories to run and publish them, where you can get on the internet and have it within two seconds of it happening. And, And sometimes even as it's happening, you're getting feed from it. Right. And a lot of times that can lead to misinformation. And I find it even harder nowadays to actually find people that are, don't have a bias towards a case and put them on the jury because things are released so quickly and information is released so quickly. It's hard to get somebody without a bias on that, sitting on that jury to give that person a fair trial.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Because some of the things that you see, some of the cases out there um, that go you know, one way or another there's such passionate feelings about them, and there's such an absolute sense of certainty as to whether or not someone is guilty or, or not guilty based on what I find more often than not is, is tweets, is, is Twitter, is 140 characters, 200 and whatever it is now. Um, it's not a well-researched, thought out story and and i wonder if also that is part of because i think that things will swing in time right we go we we grew up um in an era before the internet for the most part or at least half our lives at least and um but there's a whole you know Generation and a half that that never did. They they've only really grown up with this sort of electronic, fast-paced, immediate. Like here's the portions of the story as we have them, and you never quite catch the the, the uh, adjustments if any bad inf- information went out there. And you know, it's like eating fast food. At a certain point, you do get sick of it, and you kind of want something more substantial. And um, you know, spending three to five days researching a topic. Um, especially once everything is out, especially if it's an older case where you've got access to everything, allows you the opportunity to give a well a much more thought out presentation of of the case and also asking the questions that maybe weren't asked at the time or reviving those questions that maybe just got brushed over. Absolutely.
1: Oh, totally agree with that. That's a very good point you're making. Also, I don't ever go to Twitter to get any of my research
0: It's <laughs> very smart it's very smart,
2: <laughs> like I said, you know the internet's a wonderful thing and it's been a great tool in so many ways and at the same time it it's as far as criminal justice goes and the justice system in itself it can be it, it has not proven to be the best thing and that just goes back to people get biases very quickly about certain stories you know, and you don't hear all the information about what led to that story. Uh, A recent headline I I actually read this morning was, you know, Texas mother uh, kills five year old and that's all it said. And I'm like, well, this looks interesting. So I click on it and it's actually a story about like not a mom that meant to kill him, but Mm. a mom that had had so many issues and problems. And then the son she took on her own persona that she killed him, but that she didn't. He just passed away of different problems, but she came out. So just that headline itself was misleading. And when I clicked into it thinking, Hey, this could be our next case for a podcast. Then I'm like, this wasn't, (laughs) I mean, this is more about problems that happened, occurred in Texas due to pollution and other problems and environmental issues. than a mom killing her kid. Yeah. But that title hooked you. It It did hook me. It did. It did. But then as soon as I got into it, I was like, Oh, this isn't, I wouldn't talk about this. Like, this is not something that interests me at all. And so it just, sometimes you just have to be really careful about stuff that they look at. And there's so many misinformations. And i listen listened to podcasts that put out, they're, while they're very entertaining and very fun to listen to, a lot of their information is not correct. Or if you go back in, mm-hmm. it's old information and things have changed since then. And that's what I think we both try to do is we try to do the most updated information we possibly can and put that out there as, you know, true and accurate as possible.
1: Yeah, we even talked about, though, that if any new information came out on any of the cases that we'll cover, we'll always go back and do an update on those episodes, too.
2: Sure. And there's a couple of them that we're doing here in the next month or two that we know for a fact we're going to have to go back and do some updating on later down the road because they're just now evolving and they're just now happening and the court dates haven't even happened yet. So those are things that we're going to have to go back in and do an update on to give a kind of a second look at it and see what really occurs in it.
0: Yeah, that's, that's definitely the thing that I have found is that um, two things, actually. One, it's funny that you mentioned a headline about um, a mother killing a child because I just read a headline. I don't know how current it is, but um, a mother killed her three sons. And the headline is, Mother Kills Three Sons to Keep Them from Abusing Women. And hmm. I was like, well, that's really weird. And then I, I read just one just one article. And what happened was, as, as this article states... Um, the woman was married to her former stepfather who had been raising her since a child and who impregnated her when she was a minor at 17 and had been abusive to her the entire time. And so I don't... And and the the she killed the kids over a period of time. So obviously, again, if I'm just taking this one article at sort of face value, there's a series of trauma there. There's mental illness there. That at one point, she was... Um, one of her children. She only killed the males. She I think she has four or five. She only. Uh, they removed her. They removed the kids after two of the children's unexplained deaths. Whatever. Whatever investigation occurred, the kids were given back, and then that third boy was was killed as well. So that was like the the, the headline didn't do the the core of that story any justice. It was, um, you know it was meant to be salacious and to inflame sort of a, sort of a gender war, but really there's so much more there that is challenging to unpack because what effect does that have on a, on a person who then lives under this very abusive relationship and experience and uh, from, from from such an early age, I mean, not to cast sympathy. She did in theory murder her children, but it's complicated. Is, I guess my point.
1: Well, exactly. And I w- except for some of to the people that we cover, but there's a lot that, and I'm not making excuses for what they've done, but that there's actually reasons why they've done and a lot of them have had horrific childhood or terrible traumatic events that have happened to them, and it, if, I don't know if I can cuss on this show, if, but it fucks you, up you their can't. front, okay, it fucks up their frontal lobe, seriously, and they, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, and so they become, this, which Corey and I talk about this a lot. Mm-hmm. We and do. it turns them into a completely different person. Some people that that's just in their DNA and that's just how they're born. But for a lot of people that we have looked into, they're made that way. They weren't born that way.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. We I, I just recently watched the new Halloween movie and um, I wasn't a fan, but – in the debate as to whether or not this Hollywood uh, Halloween ends was good or not good movie. It made me think about the Rob Zombie movies that he did. He did two of the Halloweens Mm -hmm. and, you know, at the time they, they caught a lot of criticism because it was different, but I thought he took a very interesting swing in trying to explain why Michael Myers was Michael Myers. And he did it exactly what you're talking about. Like he, he showcased the kind of environment or at least one of the types of environments that can breed someone who's deranged and disturbed. And I think that sometimes we forget that the society that we've built, especially for a lot of people who are disproportionately um, lacking in wealth in their lives. And, and, and they're under sort of the thumb of, of lower income situations the you know uh, childhood trauma um uh, incest family incest uh rapes uh, all there's a there's a lot of horrific things that can happen to people at a very young age and it sort of drives from the point that hurt people hurt people and I think that the more – if we can be, move beyond sort of the sensationalized headlines and we can start to really examine all sides of a case, then I would like to believe – again, it doesn't excuse some of the these events by any stretch, but it does at least offer some clarity as to how these things occur and maybe allows us to, to make some changes on a, on a social level that could help us curb some of these more sinister uh, situations.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't know what a better word is to agree with you on. I mean, I was like, you couldn't have said it better yourself. Sure, I mean, that was great. That was a really good sum up of it. And I, I'll tell you, it, we do it right now with mass shootings, right? The mm-hmm. the big headlines are the school shootings. And when, when you take a life of an innocent kid like that, it gains a lot of notoriety. And so right away, the criminal justice system swings into let's do trainings on how to prevent mass shootings and let's do trainings on how to deal with mass shootings how to do deal with school shootings, because a mass shooting and a school shooting are very, in a lot of ways, more complex and different from each other, because you, you're handling different victims, you're handling different um, environments that you're having to deal with it. So, but that's what's, that's what's big right now, because it always makes the splash of the headlines. And right now, the big push is what's the psychology behind it? What drives them to become somebody that'll do this? Of course, the big the big thing is bullying, right? They think that's what always drives these kids and stuff to do it. But without enough research into it and without enough, you know, background information into it, it's going to be hard to determine that. And people, what I find right now is that they, they hop on bandwagons with stuff Mm -hmm. and they go, Oh, this is why they do it because of this, this and this. Well, well, that might be why that one person did it, but it doesn't mean that that's not why other people do it. And you have to look into the backgrounds of them and see what's going on. I said in one of my podcasts with court the other day that, you know, the best predictor of future crime is past criminal behavior, right? Mm. And if they're having problems already. If there's, and it might not be criminal, it might not have risen to the rising to the level of criminal yet, but they're having problems in school, Right, They're having problems. that They're in the principal's office every day. They're, or maybe they're not, maybe not coming to school. There's all kinds of things you can look at and, and really start to predict and what's going on. And those are the things that I think the public really can benefit from learning is, is why people think the way they think. And I think that's probably why true crime is so fun too for people. I think it's the psychology behind it like it is for me and Courtney. It's fun to see why people tick.
0: I think I think especially in a world where I think increasingly folks don't understand the inner workings of things. I think um, you can see that in our politics, right? People blame this group or that group or this party or that party or this this legislation or this that legislation for all the things that are wrong in their lives. And of course, the reality of it is that there's a lot of complex reasons why their life may or may not be what they imagine it to be. I think that a lot of us, this is something this is just sort of a, a, a sort of a thing that I've been fixating on lately was I think most of us in the society have some sort of compulsion or addiction that is untreated. Now it might be drinking. It might be smoking cigarettes. It might be fast food. It might be the internet. It might be social media. It might be reality television. it It may not be anything quote unquote dangerous, but for most people that I've come across folks have some sort of compulsion towards something that because it's not maybe drugs or alcohol they don't think is an addiction and therefore they don't do anything to treat it. You could easily see that a society that's perpetuated with people with some sort of compulsion. And then you, you, you adjust the, the material aspects of one's life in a certain way, you arrange them in just the right sort of configuration. And you might breed someone who is very damaged and desperate and in a dark place. And their compulsions maybe go from, I don't know, watching whatever, playing, I, I hate to blame the video games. I don't want to go to that realm, but like whatever their, their compulsion is that whatever early um, red flags they're illustrating how it can increase and, and grow and, and go into much more deadly territory.
2: Absolutely. And have so many more consequences in the right. outcome of, of, of their adulthood. You, you see that in kids and then you see it in teens and then you see it in young adults and you see it even in older adults of things that weren't treated, things that were just left unsaid or left unnoticed or left undealt with. And then it starts to spear its ugly head when some traumatic events happen. And what I'll tell you is there was a great study that came out several years back called the ACT study and the, I'm sorry, ACT study. And it actually talks about trauma that you, you, you suffer as a child and how that affects your life for the rest of your life. I mean, they did, it was a huge study. And they took kids at all different levels all ages that had all different kinds of traumas to them. And then, I mean, we're talking physically, you know, heart, high, high blood pressure, heart attacks, high cholesterol, cancer to mental side of it. You know, mental health issues that they, they suffered as adults. And it really does affect those, those younger kids that have such trauma on them. And it's a great study. I highly recommend anybody to go out and read it. it it's very long. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. It's like, I don't even remember how many pages. It's over 300 pages. But it's a great study. And it really can kind of look into the psyche of how traumatic events really can change people. And what we might perceive as traumatic may not be traumatic to somebody else, but it's our perception mm-hmm. of, the, of the trauma.
1: Right. Well, absolutely, because everybody interprets everything different. Mm-hmm. What might be a traumatic experience for you may not necessarily be for me. You know that, what I mean? And vice versa.
0: Yeah. And, and I would imagine different periods of time would dictate that as well. What What's acceptable during one period of time might seem very traumatic to us today. Um, not that it was necessarily accepted then, but they're just different time periods. There's certain behaviors that are more accepted than others during different periods of time. And I find that Absolutely. a lot of times people try to go backwards and, and apply 2022 morals to like 30, 40, 50 years in the past. And it never really jives. It doesn't do really match up. No.
2: We touch on that in the podcast we a do. lot that we talk about, you know, back because we use older cases and we talk about that. Like what was going on in that mindset at that time was very different than what goes on in today's society in today's world and what that person was facing back then to what they would face now
0: yeah it's fascinating it really is what one question that i've had and i'm glad to have you all because maybe you have some perspective on this is it feels like serial killers kind of stopped and we moved to like mass shooters and i have a theory and i, and I want to present this and i want you all to tell me if i'm just out to lunch or if there's any validity to it my theory on why there are a lot less serial killers today than there are mass shooters is just forensics and technology yep. and the ability to catch someone, you know, after one or two murders versus 10 or, or more. Uh, and so m- perhaps if you're inclined to act out in a large scale, you wouldn't do it piecemeal. You would try to do it all at once. Absolutely. Agree
2: 100% on that. You've hit the nail on the head with it. It's not a theory. It is a fact, in my yep. opinion. Technology, forensics, all that has come across so quickly. The new cutting edge right now is genealogy, using genealogy to help solve cases through this. Everybody's into the 23 and Me the
1: ancestry.com yeah if you're gonna be a serial killer so am i i did my 23 me well, but my I, twin put ours in there i was like thanks buddy uh,
2: technically <laughs> i mean to be honest with you i've had mine in since 2004 in the database because that's what you have to do when you're a crime scene investigator you have to put your dna so that everything gets contaminated they know i'm just not randomly at some crime scene killing people <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't that be a great question <laughs> yeah. no, would that be that's that would be, a great that would be fun idea to, for a book i was going to say you're up. not
0: you're not uh, dexter
1: <laughs>
2: yeah no i don't want to be dexter up in here so they back in 2004 when i started with uh, working with the crime scene they made me you know give my dna up so that I could be put into the database and it was very new back then it wasn't something that everybody could do like they can now so when 23 me came up i was like oh yeah i've been in the database forever i don't care i'm putting mine in there i'm going to see what i find out uh, luckily, I can say I have, nobody has killed anybody, and it's not been linked back to me. <laughs> but um, no, they use genealogy and they use these sites. To uh, CBS did a great documentary with one of uh, a lady that I know well um, about using genealogy to track old crimes because you have cases of murders and you have cases of rape and you have cases that have DNA evidence in them and that's sitting in refrigerators and sheriffs' offices, police departments all over the United States. That are 30 years old, but because technology wasn't once back then, and now you're coming 30, 40 years above that and having to go back and, and deal with deteriorated DNA and that kind of stuff that's happening because you can do your best to preserve it. But after a while, it's, it'll deteriorate if you're not careful. Mm-hmm. And so you see a lot of that happening and the cutting edge stuff with criminal justice just really helps with that. And every time you move forward and you get smarter and it catches people And I would think that it would breed smarter criminals, (laughs) but unfortunately it does not. They still do the same kind of mentality. Like right now, I always say one of the, one of this, I would say the, the niche to one of our, to our podcasting is we also talk about the mistakes they did from my Mm -hmm. point of view, as far as evidence they left behind, things they did wrong and That's one of the aspects of it is, you know, I always tell him, like, if you're going to be a serial killer, don't tell nobody. Don't have accomplices. It's like, just go do your own thing. Be quiet about it. Uh, There was a great movie that came out. Several years back with uh, Kevin Costner. It's the only movie I absolutely hate that he made because he's a serial killer in it, Mr. Brooks. And it just kills me that he's a serial killer. But he's so good at it, too. But he's so textbook serial killer-like. A loner is on his own, very quiet about it, gets rid of every little thing, never leaves any evidence behind. But he also gets caught because of certain things that he does. And he's even going to like AA meetings to try to <laughs> help himself get out of killing people because that's an addiction, right? Right. So that, I mean, that's why I really believe that, you know, I agree with you that that's why there's very little serial killers or they're very well, getting very little notoriety. They're still
1: serial killers. It's just, that- they get caught before they can commit one or two murders, so they sure. don't have them under their belt. They don't have multiple. And two, don't you think that people that are doing mass shootings and school shootings—I mean, a serial killer is a serial killer because they have numbers. Wouldn't you consider them a serial killer too? I wouldn't. Consider, I mean, not that they're stalking them, but they have them numbers.
2: I wouldn't consider them a serial killer because to me, they're just a different mindset. Um, why they do it, when they do it, and how they do it is. Completely different than why a serial killer. I mean, a serial killer gets a thrill out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, they get a certain. It's just you don't think these kids aren't getting a thrill out of it. I don't know that these kids quite understand what's going on in their brain when they do it. Same thing with guys. Oh. Same thing with the adults that that commit the mass shootings. Um, the guy that in Las Vegas, not too many years ago, at the country music festival thing, where he killed all those people from the from the uh, penthouse or whatever, the top floor of the hotel. Mm. I don't know that
1: he was a serial killer. <laughs> um, I think he had other issues that caused him. So you think to... most of these are? Then are you saying that? Sorry, we digress. I didn't mean to get off. No, the No, go right and ahead. Well, then, do you think though, then, that mass shooters and people that are doing the school shootings that they're because to me, I feel like they're mostly are mentally ill. I mean, that's what I think is that they I, have some sort of diagnosed mental illness that I, has been going on. I think
2: compared to serial killers. I think they're just a different genre of a killer, of a murderer. I think with serial killers, there's a certain level of accomplishment and thrill to it that they like, that they have types, they have certain things that make a niche, they have to kill in a certain way. Your mass shooters, I think that something just kind of snaps inside of them and whatever the course that pushes them to that point and then something snaps and then they just go and they accomplish what makes what they think will solve the problem at the time? Serial okay. killers aren't like that. They very mm-hmm. much usually groom, breed, um, watch, stalk. They they it's a it's a predatory kind of behavior that I don't think that mass shooters have. I think mass shooters are more of the attention seeking behavior because serial killers like to do it until they get caught, and then once they get caught, I mean Ted Bundy is a great example of that, right? He was having a great time until he got caught. And then when he got caught, he's like, well, okay, I can now get something out of the attention. But he would have been Mm -hmm. fine still killing and getting his gratification still killing without ever having attention. I think mass shooters have a certain level of needing the attention and wanting the attention and wanting to do something that shows everybody what they can do. Okay. I I, I think a little bit.
0: No, I, I'm, I'm glad for the digression because I think that it it highlights um, something we were talking about earlier, which is that the role that society plays in sort of building a monster, so to speak. Not to take Netflix's uh, IP, but you know, we live in a we live in a instant gratification era of our life. We live in an era where everything is readily available to us um, at a moment's notice. Uh, you. you, you even to the point where like, we've moved so far beyond fast food windows to Postmates where you don't even have to leave your home and you can pay a 50% surcharge to just have someone bring you your McDonald's to your house. Um, in Los Angeles, and California in general, plant medicine is legal. So all I have to do, the, the long gone are the days of finding a dealer and, and shady deals in corners. I mean, I just go to an app and they deliver whatever to my house Everything is is a, t- a keystroke away on the internet, from the most deviant of interests to the most pedestrian. It's all instant, and so I wonder, just in hearing the conversation you all just had. If the some of the difference is not just is not just the fact that people tend to get caught faster, uh, anything prolonged would be much more difficult to to maintain because of forensics and because of technology. But I wonder if also it 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 speaks to sort of a, a general mindset that our society shares, and when taken to its most extreme level, it acts out along that same sort of instant gratification where it's like I'm going to react and do as and do as much as possible in one burst rather mm-hmm. than the slow methodical sort of release of, uh, okay, I'm going to kill. I feel satisfied. I got to kill again. I'm going to go do it again. It's like, I, I just got to do it all now because mm-hmm. that's kind of the society that is, it's building all of us in that manner. Just some of us are in a much darker place and take it to a far more extreme. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I think it, I, we've I all think kind of, yeah. that instant
1: gratification. Like, I mean,
0: that's Especially why I think for the really, school
1: shootings, for mm-hmm. those that are younger kids that are doing them, wouldn't you think that they've been raised on that instant gratification? Everything is right then and now.
2: Sure, that's the. I mean, that's the what I'm, what I'm saying about serial killers and mass shooters. They're just two different mindsets. You have serial killers are very methodical. They like to. They're, they're killing for gratification purposes. Mass shooters are killing for attention purposes, in my opinion, mm-hmm. right? They want it down. They want to show. They want to make a big bang. They want to show you who they are. They want to show you what they can do. And serial killers, if they get caught, then they're okay. But a lot of them don't really talk about their killings, right? You don't have... A lot of stuff until they've been sitting in prison for you know years before they'll come back and do tapes for you and say okay well this is what I did but they still don't give you the whole story. Where mass right. shooters they're putting their whole diary on their their manifesto on out for the whole public to see on social media platforms. That's so true. they go and then they go and do it. It's, it's all about gratification, instant gratification, attention compared to somebody who is truly. A, a psychopath who truly gets pleasure out of just killing people and watching the torture and the pain that they go through, you know, that's what they get out of it. They like to see the life slip out of their hands where mm. you've got mass shooters who just want to do as much carnage as possible up front.
1: Right.
0: I mean, we were, we were in high school when Columbine happened, mm-hmm. which um, was obviously the most high profile of school shootings. And it, I mean, I'm sure there, I'm sure there were school shootings before that. I'm certain of it. But n- no other case captured the the attention like that one did at that time. Now it's it, it happens every other day, literally every other day or at least every week. There's a new school shooting to the point where it's no longer shocking on the same level. Well, yeah,
1: you've become desensitized to it. I mean, Columbine, it was so shocking because you didn't hear about it. And the, the instant media has also made it glamorous oh yeah yeah oh yeah they have glamorized it they get
2: shows they get interviews they get tv made about them they get deals that come out and you know they can get their families can get money from it i mean all kinds of not that i'm saying mass shooters think about that stuff because i don't think that really plays too much in their brain i really think it's more of an attention seeking gratification that they get but they get so much more out of it than they used to like Ted Bundy's stuff didn't become popular until long after he was dead. He wasn't talked about much right. after they killed him. And then all of a sudden this new kind of, I don't even know how to say it, this new pop culture kind of way who got interested in serial killers and that kind of stuff and made it fun and made like we're doing, made it interesting for people to listen to. and not just creeped out and scared that you're, you know, you're shopping next to your local serial killer at the local, you know, shopping mart. We've made it fun and interesting for them, So I think, that that also starts to educate people and point out different things and kind of helps bury them down into why they're not getting caught or why they're not producing so much, I guess and they're not killing as much is because people are out there starting to notice weird things and they're starting to tell people, Hey,
1: my neighbor, he's a little odd. Like there's something off with him. Well, we had a serial killer that was in our area over the summer that came from oh. Houston and actually came down here and, it was crazy how it flew from our police that did a local Facebook post about it, warning women of how crazy, I mean, it had like over a hundred thousand shares within an hour or something like
0: that. I mean, it just shows you, you know what I I mean? I wish our
2: podcast would be shared that fast.
0: (laughs) I know your time. You're only four episodes in. Well, I I think that's, that's a big part of it. I mean, you know, beyond the forensics and, and the, um, the instruments that the police have. I remember there was a story a few years ago where there was, um, a a neo-Nazi guy on a, on a subway and he ends up getting knocked out and the, and the punch out was caught on video. And what happened was, uh, someone spotted him at one train stop. And through social media, it started saying, hey, there's some neo-Nazi on this train. And by the time he got to whatever stop he was going to, there were people waiting to, to take care of him. And that's just how immediate those kind of that kind of can spread. Um, I had a friend that was sharing... Uh, she'd gone on a bad date with someone from Tinder. And it turns out through some network that this guy had been a creep to like a bunch of women on Tinder. And he had the same MO. And so like, within seconds... He, his face is on, on, you know, Instagram and Twitter and what have you, saying, like, hey, keep an eye. If you're, if you live in the Long Beach area, keep an eye out for this guy. This is his MO. And so I do certainly think that there is a big aspect of the fact that it's just so much harder to do. Um, I don't think our society breeds people who have that kind of patience to do that sort of drawn out sort of uh, hunt. And, I I also think that part of the fascination with serial killers is because they do feel like a relic of the past. Like, I don't know. I mean, certainly there's still evil all around, but I think the average person doesn't really fear dying via serial killer these days, even with all the attention drawn to it, because it does feel like a thing back then. It's, it's a little out of sight, out of mind. And so, even though it's horrific, we can examine it a little bit more clinically than uh, people might have done during like the summer of Sam. Exactly. Yep. I would agree with that.
2: A hundred percent. And you're right because there's such a small subset of criminals. They're easy to sit down and really dissect and go through and, and they're interesting and their mindsets are interesting and the way they think things and the way they look at things are very interesting to us. Like, When you talk about somebody eating somebody else like Dahmer, I mean,
1: I I don't... That's interesting. That's interesting. How mean, that not be interesting? I
2: I think for most people, it's like, why would you... I mean, it's the fascination of, oh, I have to find out why they would do this.
1: Not that I want to eat anybody. I don't want (laughs) to eat anybody. It's fascinating that somebody would have that mindset to want to do that.
2: Well, Well, and that mindset, then you also get a fascination of, well, what is that mindset? Like what do you call that? Like what is that? And that that's why serial killers are fun. But the reality of it is most of our crime is not serial killers. Most of it is so much more broad and spread out. And so serial killers are fun. And that's something that me and Courtney kind of said when we started this podcast, there's like everybody does serial killers because there's only a subset few of them that are really interesting. Mm-hmm. And they're fun to look at, but everybody's done them. I want to do stuff where there's sinister minds that have done sinister crimes that you won't believe. And you're going to be like, I thought Dahmer was bad. Oh, this person's really bad. And and she never got any notoriety or he never got any notoriety because of whatever the media was at the coverage of the time or whatever was going on. So that's kind of where we focus our podcast on—is just cases that maybe we don't... just
1: really loved Varnos
2: because she is... oh she's a treat, man. She was she, she was really a, a, treat. a treat, but she was <laughs> just one of those, and she was special though. I mean, there wasn't that many. She was kind of the first. She wasn't the first female serial killer. That's
1: what they liked to dub her, but she
2: wasn't. She there was, was not... a lot of there other was a females... lot more before that. I mean, that were serial. She was killers. just the one
1: that got the most notoriety because media sure gravitated right. towards her
2: and the way she killed and who she killed. Her victims were important. She killed men. And in right. and, and that, and that time and era, that was, you know, a very scary, you have to listen to our podcast, but that was a very scary mindset for men back then that there could be a predator out there taking them out. It was just like with Dahmer, right? I mean, Ted Bundy, okay. He, you know, he's okay, but Dahmer's killing men and eating them and this woman's killing them and leave them, you know, leave them on the side of the road dead, you know? Make so that that's very, very different in a mindset of what makes them interesting and I just think once we get into a lot of our cases and people listen to a lot of our podcasts, they're going to find a whole new subset of sinister minds to really like and want to listen to. When,
0: and I, I think film. in the in the in the case of Warner it's like aside from the fact that there, there's obviously a big Hollywood movie made about her, so obviously you know, with big A-listers, so that's obviously going to draw attention. But just the power dynamic shift, the fact that they're you know again. Um, because I think you mentioned earlier that one of the victims had been had raped her or had or been yes, a rapist. Richard, Richard Mallory, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's like for men who were used to being able to enjoy a position where they were safe from women, regardless of whether they're bad people or not, just just enjoying that position. I, I was talking to my wife about um, 9/11 because my wife's Australian, so just a different understanding of that time period in, in, of america pre- before 9 11 and after 9 11. and i was explaining to her that up until 9 11 there was always this sense that we enjoyed of like wars happen over there yeah they don't happen in america i mean I, I know there was pearl harbor but that was a long time ago it's your grandfather we're safe we're like essentially an island um australia is an, is literally an island europe and the middle east and and other places is where war happened and we could enjoy that comfort, and then when it came to our doorstep, it was a shock. It was it took us out of our out of our comfort zone, and I, and I would imagine that at that time period, for men to enjoy this position where they never feared walking outside, like, even to this day, men don't fear going walk into their car after work at night. Generally, I mean, I'm sure there are some people, but for the most part, the concern of being attacked, raped, murdered is probably not prevalent in most men's mental vocabulary. Um, So then to know that they are in fact, vulnerable, that they are in fact, capable of being victims that they are in fact, you know, fallible, just like everyone else to being overtaken by someone with devious intentions, must have been a shock, especially at that time period, especially at a time when it was more pronounced that they were safe from anyone doing any harm, especially on a broader scale
2: a hundred percent correct on that, that we touch on that in our podcast. It's really funny that you say that, cause we really do touch on that. That for me was one thing that stood out about the Warno case, Warno's case. And it's one of the reasons why I liked us going through it and making that one of our first podcasts, because that was really what stood out for her. She wasn't, she was taking out the apex predator and that,
1: was scary like that's you know well and she was doing it across central florida too like she wasn't staying to one county she was spreading herself out uh, too
2: she was really working it i mean she was doing i mean she was able to cover some ground quickly and get you know some men shaking in their boots back then and that's what makes her interesting as far as her sinister mind goes is you don't want to think about your local wife or your local you know strip pole dancer or your local hooker coming across and killing you. (laughs) You think you're just going to pay for a quickie and be done with it. And then she kills you. (laughs) That's a scary thought because you're not afraid usually as a man. And if you're in that type of situation, I'm sure you're not thinking that you're going to get killed. So for that to start happening and, you know, in that time period, it was very, very much a practice back then for men to be doing that kind of thing up and down that area stretch of highway. It was something that I found in my research that it was a it was kind of known as the area where a you go to Hooker Highway, yeah Hooker Highway, and like so Leopard Street,
0: yeah, yes, Leopard just Street like Leopard upper-
2: you know it. <laughs> 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 but so I would absolutely I, I agree with that
0: a hundred percent about is in in your research and as you're starting to investigate these cases, and I love the thoughtfulness behind each case and how you really examine not just the the details of the case, but like we were just talking about the broader social impact of a particular case. Um, I think that a case like that would you could I I'm, I'm sure I don't know that I'm speculating, but i would I would imagine that if you looked at some sort of chart in terms of the frequency in which men uh, engaged with prostitution, you know, before uh, Warnos and after, I would imagine there'd be a bit of a decline in the same way that there was people going to the beach after Jaws came out, or perhaps it, 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 even more modernly now where this, the, you know, the social media and the internet allows everything to be captured and people's bad behavior, Harvey Weinstein gets called out and there's sort of evidence behind it. I would imagine that there was an immediate social impact and, and relevance after that case became public. I would imagine. We should have looked into that because I didn't even think about that. Part three.
1: I'm Part like, three. man, we should have looked into either Part didn't- three. But I would imagine there would have been, because I would imagine men would have been like, is this a copycat?
2: I would have liked to go back and be able to interview the working women of those streets and be like, hey, did you see an impact in your, like, uh, you know, your economic?
1: Calling those <laughs> oh. women look so rough. I don't think any of them are still did you, alive.
2: Did you see, like, a, a like an economic downfall after Warnos got in trouble for killing your johns? Like, is that the problem? I mean... It's an interesting concept for sure, and I'm sure it had some kind of effect on it. I mean, I'm pretty sure that you know the regulars stopped being so regular after that uh, in that stretch of highway. But I don't know that it necessarily because it didn't gain the notoriety back then that it did nowadays. Right. I don't know that it got spread across the United States like true, it cause has it, since. Because when was it was popular
1: made? in Florida? Well, the crime was spread around in Florida, but it didn't really make that much national. Since it, you know what I mean. I mean, Florida. I was talking about it. Yeah, even when
2: Warnos was killed, like I mean, she was put executed. She there wasn't a lot. I mean, she was executed in two thousand and three, and there still wasn't a lot of buzz about it. Like I don't remember. No, because was
1: Monster made after she was executed? Because uh, I thought Monster was being made while, while she was on death row, but I could be wrong about that.
0: It, it came out in two thousand
1: and three. Yeah. Okay, maybe it was right after she. I was cause I could have sworn that she knew that there was a movie coming out about her. If, if it, I was to say. It, in my research, I just when I read that.
0: Yeah, if it came out in two thousand three, they would have been filming at least a year prior to that. So, mm-hmm. um, if she was if she was put to death in two thousand three, then she would have at least been aware there was in the making.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I was just
0: go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead.
2: No, no, I was just gonna say I was in full blown, like college mode at that time. And she never came up on my radar. And I was studying criminal justice at the time, and she never came up on my radar. So it's just interesting, even at that point in time, she still did not make the notoriety that she made until after the movie came out until after it became a kind of that Hollywood sensation, I guess.
0: Yeah. She died in, it looks like she was put to death on October 9th, 2002. So True. she probably True. was aware of it was, was being made, but didn't get to watch it. Because mm-hmm. similarly, I had no concept. I had no idea of this case until the Charlize Theron movie came out monster. And then it was like, then it was a big thing. And then you start seeing her photos. I think as well, was, was really compelling when you actually start seeing like how she's kind of mugging for the camera and she's shaved the eyebrows off and she's kind of a very imposing figure after she was caught, much less before. She, I mean, obviously, all we can see of her is like, you know, after the fact and how defiant she sort of comes off in her images. And um, she does have a very imposing sort of aura around her. She never wanted to be shown as weak.
2: Yeah, her vulnerability is one thing that she tried to hide completely. And when things made her look vulnerable or came out about her Showing her vulnerability That's when you really saw her I call her her Jekyll and Hyde ways But you really saw that bad side of her come out And that real defiant side come out Because she didn't want people to know Just how vulnerable she really was
0: Which is a really interesting perspective Because I think when you look at that case Specifically um, Especially after the movies come out The idea that Eileen Wuornos would be vulnerable Would be a vulnerable person Probably doesn't isn't something that jumps to people's mind right away and yet as you've done your research and as you've really looked into the case that seems to be a pretty not only like an aspect of of this this case but maybe a motivator in some regards like it's 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 almost like a it's a self-defense mechanism and i'm not making light of the fact that she murdered people but like perhaps from her perspective it was it was like i'm gonna get them before they get me and and so I'm going to, I'm going to prove I'm going to protect myself by being vicious.
2: We talked about that actually in our podcast um, about her, that happening. I don't personally think that Warnos went into (laughs) being, becoming a serial killer of John's. Like, I don't think that's what she wanted to do. I think with her first guy, I think she went out to make money naturally as a hooker, a prostitute. Um, And Mallory was such an offensive person and did so much terrible things to her that that's why she wound up killing him and then found a sense of happiness in it a sense of Mm. completeness in it and that's what made her crave to do it again and again and again and again so had Mallory not done what he did to her and just had sex with her and left her alone I don't know that she would have Flip that switch. I don't know I that she would that. have I don't know that she would have gone as far as she did.
1: I agree with that because I do think that Mallory from everything that we saw in the research I think Mallory raped her and I think that that's what lit the match to mm-hmm. for whatever reason on the next ones whether she was just already mad at the men that she was picking up from Mallory raping her or they did something that made her from having that traumatic experience flinch and kill them You never know. But I think the first one, definitely she killed him in self-defense, which led to the other ones. And if Mallory had never done what he did, I agree with you. I don't think she would have ever taken down that road.
2: Yeah. If you compare her to Dahmer, right? I mean, Dahmer from a very young age really liked, you know, inflicting pain on animals, people. He was fascinated with the pain part, the aspect of killing people. And then you look at Ted Bundy and his fascination was producing pain to women. He liked hurting women. He liked women to suffer under his hand. He liked that. That's what aroused him. Same thing with Dahmer. And then the whole eating thing with Dahmer is a whole different story. But those are the things when you look at and you compare those three serial killers together, I would almost say that Warnos comes out as, I don't know she would have went as far as she did had what happened to her in her childhood yeah, I think that compounded great. with what Mallory did to her snapped something inside of her. Yeah. And that's when the only I think that's the first time she ever really felt like a completeness, like a, a sense of of pride is when she took Mallory's life and says, you're not going to do that to me. No more. I'm done with that. I'm a strong person. I'm not going to put up with this anymore because she had suffered abuse her whole entire childhood. Right. Pretty, pretty much. Yeah. her pre I would say teenhood. Probably better. Both childhood. And then then you look at at Dahmer, and he's more of just, he likes pain. He likes to see people be in pain. He likes to see things be in pain. He likes to watch the life drain out of them. And then with Bundy, it gets even more really, really Mm -hmm. concreted. And it's, I like women to have pain by my hand kind of thing.
1: But Warnes wasn't like that. She didn't want to see anybody in pain. She Mm -hmm. didn't have that She didn't have the thrill kill. Thrill kill. Like she said. (laughs) Like she said, thrill kill. I mean, so I think that made her different too. And on the fact that she actually could love. Like, I mean, she really, she loved Ty, her girlfriend. And she also had a really good relationship with filmmaker Nick Bloomfield, who did two documentaries on her. And they actually Mm -hmm. form an actual true friendship. Like you can tell that they actually care about one another. And for her to be able to also be able to have a friendship with a male who she was molested and raped by her grandfather, one of her grandfather's friends. I mean, the boys in the neighborhood, I mean, it was horrible, but for her to still be able to develop a friendship with a male and be able to one time at the end of one of the end of the interviews he does with her, tell him, I love you. I think that shows that she's a completely
0: different serial killer than those two men. I find it interesting. Also, if you look at those three people, um, And you look at their kill count. Eileen kills seven men. Um, Dahmer, 17. And Ted Bundy, like 30 people. Mm -hmm. And yet, in the way that they're portrayed, um, Moros and Dahmer are really portrayed as like these vicious monsters. And Bundy... For reasons are, that are still beyond my grasp, seems to come off like a sex symbol still in certain circles. I don't get it. I don't understand it. You know, you've got like Zac Efron playing him in a movie, and yet he actually committed like three times the mur- four times the murders that Eileen did,
2: and heinous, uh, heinous hein- murders. Like the things he did to those women. Yeah, yeah. The things he did to those women were ungodly. I mean, I just can't even imagine. I can't ever. Why I don't ever imagine because I'm not a serial killer. So I can't put myself ever understanding why they do what they do. But with Bundy, one thing that always got me about Bundy is he's he he really developed a cult following people just adored him. He was charming. He was charismatic. He was smart. He was very much the guy next door. The Netflix documentary kind of fulfills that and there's but he's a true psychopath. Same thing with with Dahmer. He's a true psychopath. They have no ability to have any emotion connection to anything, right? You could show them a severed head and a, pic, a picture of a severed head and a picture of a puppy. And they're never going to have any other emotion that's going to be the same blank emotion across their face. that's what you typically find with with psychopaths they typically don't have that kind of emotion they don't feel for anything they don't they don't feel anything they don't love anything they don't have any emotion towards anything and then you have somebody like warnos which i think she's more of a sociopath and i think her raising has brought her up to be that way because of all the traumatic stuff she went through and like i said had mallory not done what he did to her I don't know that she would have ever went on to be a serial killer in that sense. But well, at the t- same time, you know, who would have known what would have triggered that inside of her. But as she says in her own words, we are all serial killers inside. It just depends on, or we're all killers inside. It just depends on what brings that out.
1: Yeah. That we all have the capability of being that. Mm-hmm.
0: But do you, yeah. don't you,
1: Sorry. Right. Go ahead. I was going to say, don't uh, you think, sorry, go ahead.
0: <laughs> I was going to make a real quick point. Um it there, it reminds me of of uh um I think it's like the, the Killing Joke, the comic book with Batman and sort of uh, the, the whole concept around it is the Joker is trying to prove to Batman that anyone can be the Joker if they just have a bad enough day. One bad day is the difference between Bruce Wayne and the Joker. And we've seen that play out in movies as well kind of exploring those themes but it, it's a fascinating, it's a scary question, really, when you think about it, that just a, the right mixture, it's almost like chemistry. The difference between adding one element versus another element is the difference between soap and nitroglycerin. It's the difference between devastation uh, with the atomic bomb, if you split an atom in such a way, or renewable energy for an entire grid, city grid. Right? it, the we, we sit on a very delicate precipice and... It's just a matter of which way the wind blows, the material conditions around us can, in many regards, I think, and I think this is a scary thing for people to think about, that we sometimes think, well, those are just weird people. They're just born this way, and they're evil incarnate, et cetera. But it it really can, and probably in most instances, boil down to a few material conditions that happen in just the wrong way to produce something that is pretty despicable. Absolutely.
2: Oh, yeah. When you talk about also sociopaths and psychopaths, you're talking about one that's being made and one that's born that way. That's just how their chemical makeup is. And for me, that's one thing that sets Bundy and Dahmer and Warnos apart is Warnos, obviously, to me, is a sociopath who was made. The situation was pressed on her. Dahmer and Bundy were more of the psychopaths where they're just, their chemical makeup in their brain, the only gratification they got in life was to cause and inflict pain on others. And then why the others were male to female is their own personal preference and could be caused by any number of reasons. But it's, they were made that way. They, I mean, Dahmer started to abuse animals. His parent, his dad and him do a wonderful very good documentary even though it's from it's an older documentary and they talk and if you ever get a chance to watch it I highly recommend it they talk about his dad talks about how just of a good kid he was and he always did what he was told. He was never out of line. But then he would catch him, you know, dissecting squirrels and eating him raw in the yeah, backyard. His dad,
1: didn't his dad teach him how to, like, dissect the animals? Because Well, his thought. dad
2: was hunting. And then he he asked his dad. And he was like, look, I, I'd like to see inside him. His dad's like, well, go ahead. Just out of curiosity. Never did he think that it was going to lead to him, you know, doing experiments on, you know, wayward teens in his, you know, house and putting him in underneath and in, in freezers. But. I think that that is something that is just already instilled, and you have those two different subsets of, of people, along with those two subsets of uh, serial killers, and that's what makes them fun and interesting. But at the same time, like you just said, there could just be a environmental thing that snaps inside of them that causes them to go that way.
0: Yeah, it, it it's it's really it's fascinating, and and it's obvious why it's so captivating, because it really is a deeper look in not just personal psychology, but also social psychology, social institutions, the way things are set up, like trying to get to the core of why someone would do something so outlandish to us in the way the norms of this society works is you could you could spend years doing. And I think that you all do such a great job, like I said, treating it with reverence and um, not sensationalizing it and, and just approaching it from a very inquisitive perspective because I think that that is the perspective that your audience is coming from as well and so you're kind of you're standing in for their own questions and at the same time providing information and uh, perspective on how courts work and how trials work and things of that nature that they wouldn't have access to outside of Hollywood. So I think that's that's one of the the most charming things about your podcast and why I would urge people to listen to it because I I think it stands out in that regard rather than just being – um, something that reports the details of the case, you know, uh, ASMR to listen to before bed. Like, it's not just that, it really does invite you to ask the same questions. Um, that you're asking, it asks your audience to really ponder and think about and maybe come to some difficult decisions and and, um, challenges in the way that they normally look at things. And and I think that's cool. That's a really, uh, we need more of that in all aspects. So I really appreciate that you all do that in your podcast. And one last question, because I've experimented on it with this podcast, and I'm not very good at it. You all are great at it. How much and at what time do the cocktails begin? And have you ever (laughs) have you ever found yourself getting to the end of a podcast and realizing I'm a little slushed? This is a yes, because I will occasionally have a drink on this podcast, just the one it's rare. Uh, but I've experimented with cannabis before doing a podcast, and I'm generally not happy with the results. So um, I'm just curious, since it's sort of built into the environment of your show, like at what point do, the, do, the, do you pregame? Do we pregame. Do we we well, do we
1: definitely pre. Yeah, well, if you we... can't tell, because I have not had but one cocktail in me, I need a couple cocktails I'm to loosen me up, I guess. Like I'm just naturally shy. So we do pregame it. But yesterday, Corey and I recorded a promo for our podcast and we hadn't been drinking and like it went by so quick and we're like, wow, we get so much accomplished when (laughs) we're not drinking.
2: (laughs) And yeah, we really find that we wind up talking we go off subject and start talking about other stuff because we're literally literally two friends sitting down having drinks talking about, you know, things that we find interesting. And then it just turns into something that surprisingly people want to listen to.
1: I just got done to editing a podcast that for next week I no yes for next week I had to cut out an hour and a half of it <laughs> it was three hours long because a lot of it was just drunk and banter banter and, and laughing hysterically I was like nobody can understand us so
2: <laughs> so we, we do find where we have to keep them in a certain amount uh, we have to we can't pregame too much but enough to get court going and then from there you know we and when we're on the podcast we don't typically drink because we're talking so it's hard to, to drink and talk at the same time, of course. And we don't want to people listening to us swallow or chew on ice. So we tend to pregame it, but sometimes. But we drink during it, and we do have them. I and you'll hear us every once in a while during our podcast. You can, yeah, you'll you hear can hear a
0: swallow. Or you can hear Corey pouring us another drink.
2: Drink, yeah. We'll refill oh, yeah. it. But...
0: I am still trying to master the art of like moving my face away from when I have to swallow. Cause it's, you don't, you don't hear it in your headphones and then like you hear it back on the recording. You're like, Oh my God, it's so, I'm so annoyed. Why do I do that? Um, yeah. get thirsty. I used to, I used to hold the podcast for an hour and I realized that was impossible. It's just, it, it, if you're having a, f- if you're having a flowing conversation, it will be what it is. And I think, the one of the things on top of the other things I've listed that is really charming about your podcast and that I think is really captivating about it is that it's, I, I love just hearing conversations and maybe I have some sort of voyeuristic tendencies, but it's like when you're at a restaurant and you overhear a compelling conversation at the table next to you, your ears perk up a little bit. Yeah. You're, you're, you're listening, especially if it's like a really in depth conversation. There's just something about that that just is far more interesting than listening to a lecture, even if the topics are the same. And I think that you capture that. It it sounds like two friends digging in, like going down the rabbit hole, so to speak, and 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 asking some really compelling questions and also providing some very useful information. So I wish that people uh, I will walk away from this podcast as, as amped up about your podcast as I am, because I'm gonna become a, a regular listener. I'm really enjoying it so far. And awesome. uh, it's it's Sinister Crimes and Cocktails. You do – on your social media, but you have Facebook and Instagram, correct? Facebook and Instagram. And is it just at Sinister uh, Crimes and Podcasts or uh, – co- Sinister and Crimes cocktails. and Cocktails. Yes. I've had a couple of drinks apparently as I'm talking. <laughs> um, you share the recipe for the I cocktail. I do.
1: I share the recipes and I share a picture of the drink that Corey has made us that day for that episode so you can see what it looks like.
2: Yeah, we, we spent
1: a lot of time doing research and drinking to find out. Corey does. The, Corey is the one that comes up with each cocktail for each episode. So I have to give her the credit. Yeah, for that.
2: And I did make Courtney drink them before we put them on live. So I'm like, okay, you have to taste this. And then sometimes she's like, no, nope, not that one. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, back to the drawing board. Let's figure out something else. And then sometimes we just throw things together and we're like, oh, that works. That, that'll work. Let's do that one. So it, she really is the inspiration behind them because I'm always playing to her taste and to what you know, we'll get her loose lipped, I guess is the best way to say it. Friday and
1: Saturdays have become fun of
0: test testing new T- drinks. Yeah.
2: So. That's where you'll find us. Usually on Friday and Saturday nights are testing drinks and making
0: drinks. That sounds like an excellent job to have. So when, for everyone who's listening, when does the podcast drop? Do you have a regular schedule? Or is it just sort of as you're able to,
1: We are going to do a episode every Monday. So every Monday morning I'll have an episode and I have it scheduled to drop at 4 a.m. our time Mm -hmm. in Texas. So
2: that would be three hours your time behind. So that would be
1: two hours. Midnight, two hours. So, okay. So no, I have it. Yeah. 4 a.m. So 2 a.m. It would be your time. Pacific time. Every Monday. So you can kick off your week, you know, listen
0: to us back and forth. So this is perfect. So this podcast will drop on Monday. Listen to this podcast in the morning. And then whenever it's your happy hour or lunch break or what have you, make the same cocktail that you all are enjoying and listening to. listen to one of the better, if not one of the best, uh, true crime podcasts that I've heard. I really, really like it. And it's cool to have you all on. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Taking time out of your day. And you're, Courtney, you've done fine, even with only sipping one drink during this. Year. Oh, thank you're you, because I was like, out.
1: oh. I was so worried about this. I was nervous. I'm not <laughs> going to lie. Like I was like, is it hot in the laundry room? Like I am starting to sweat. I'm getting so nervous. That's also what's
2: super fun about us. We're literally in Quartz laundry room. So every once in a while you hear like her dryer go off or you hold a dog's bark behind us. And it's like, we're oh, yeah. just really two good friends having a conversation and and having some fun.
0: Well, I I, I, think, I love it. I think it's a good vibe.
2: Thank you so much for having
0: us on. Yes, like, thank we you. We really greatly appreciate this.
2: Definitely. We'll become a, a big podcast listener of yours because I really enjoy talking with you.
0: Excellent, excellent. Well, uh, sinister crimes and cocktails. You can find yourself. You can find your pages on Facebook, on Instagram. You're on Spotify. I'm sure you're on Apple iTunes, iTunes, Google Podcast,
1: Amazon, Amazon Music,
0: iHeartRadio. Yep. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, uh, Court and Corey. I've loved talking with you and catching up with you. Uh, it's probably been twenty, 20 years. Odd years. More or less. Um, I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to Monday's episode. I will make the same cocktail that you all make, and I'll enjoy it. And I'll send a message and let you know how I'm enjoying it. And I urge all my listeners to listen to your podcast as well. Thank you so much. Thank you so, so much. I would like to thank Corey and Courtney once again for coming on the podcast and sharing their motivations and their intentions behind their podcast, Sinister Crimes and Cocktails, which actually comes out today. So if you've listened to this podcast and if you enjoyed listening to Courtney and Corey's story, check out their podcast, Sinister Crimes and Cocktails, comes out every Monday. And um, if you're listening it during happy hour, there's a special treat. If you go to their socials, both on Facebook and on Instagram, they'll share a craft cocktail recipe that you could enjoy while listening to murder and mayhem and mystery. As I said at the top of the podcast, I always find true crime very interesting because at its surface, it seems to be taking enjoyment listening to horrific events, but the reality of it is it's really truly the psychology that's fascinating. It's trying to understand what seems to be un- understandable. It tries to make sense out of something that is nonsensical. Why? What would motivate someone to commit heinous crimes on a mass level, whether it's in, in mass shootings or in serial killing? What is the driving factors behind someone going to such a dark place and acting out these dark thoughts? Human psychology is fascinating. One of the reasons why I do this podcast is to try to learn more about people through listening to their stories, to seeing what kind of art they create. Because I do believe that there's a part of us in each form of art created, if in fact that is your intention to create art and not just schlock. And I think that the girls do such a great job of showing that their passion for this. This isn't just sort of something to do because it's uh, trendy. It's it's really motivated by a genuine interest to learn more, to do the work, to do the research. There used to be a time when journalism was, was well respected because of the amount of research that's put into uncovering and discovering and then conveying to an audience the going-ons of the world. And more and more, why I feel like mainstream media has moved away from that and has moved to more of a profit driven motivation. It's up to people like Courtney and Corey. It's up to people who, like you, who do your podcasts, who do your blogs, that have your write ups to fill in the gaps that have long since been abandoned, to do the work, to do the research, to really dig through the, the, court cases and uh, the information around it and to do the research so that you have a better understanding beyond the sensationalized version that you might get in your newest Netflix TV show. Which is not to say that those films are bad inherently. I mean, they may drive interest in and of themselves. But to be able to go through and really go through the less uh, sexy aspects of a case, to sort of get through the grit and the grime of it all, that, I think, is where one finds a far more um, understanding place behind these senseless acts. It's where you might have a glimpse of understanding as how these kind of individuals are created. I've said before on podcasts that hurt people hurt people, and never has that been more true than when talking about true crime. Many of the people who are involved in these cases have had horrific backgrounds, and while this is not to excuse those behaviors, it is fascinating, and it is perhaps something that will allow us as a community to maybe maybe build a better environment for these folks to live in so that we have less monsters created. The more we know, the more we can do. And I think that Courtney and Corey do an excellent job of educating people on some aspects of true crime that you don't normally get from other podcasts. And so I pour you to give them a try. Let's give them a listen. Today is Monday when this podcast is being posted. They will have an episode up today as well. Pour yourself a craft cocktail, ha- kick back, enjoy spooky season, listen to some true crime support indie creators and I want to thank you all for supporting me listening to this podcast listening to our guests hearing their stories and just being such wonderful wonderful audiences from all across the world I've said this many times I do this podcast as a labor of love I do it because I get such amazing feedback and I know that there are people out there who really appreciate it so I want to share my appreciation back to you for all the support over the last few years across many podcasts that I've done. So thank you all once again. Thank you, Courtney and Corey. Please go listen to the Sinister Crime and Cocktails podcast. And until next time, gold rings on you all.